So today we're, we're continuing in our study. We're going to be in John chapter 6. Let me go ahead and just encourage you to, to turn there uh, so that you'll be able to read and follow along. But in this study, in our doctrinal study, we've come to the place where we're studying the doctrines of grace. We're studying the gospel and how it comes to us by God and from God. We're, we're studying, uh, it's, it's, we're calling it the doctrines of grace. Historically, it's been called Calvinism. It's been known by an acrostic called, uh, called uh, Tulip. And each one of those, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. Uh, but those are really recent developments. Actually, those weren't even known until they weren't, they weren't not known. They were developed in the early 1900s just as a tool to help people learn. Uh, but we're not looking to defend the acrostic um, or, or even, um, we're, we're just looking at the Bible. What does the Bible say about how we come to know the gospel. What are these doctrines of grace and are they rooted in the scripture? Last week, we studied the one that's most commonly known as total depravity. We talked about it and, and rather than trying to identify it simply as total depravity, we really ref- wrestled with it or looked at it in terms of it is the necessity of God's grace. Like salvation has to be by God's grace because we as a people are incapable. We have no ability to earn it and we have no ability to to participate in our own salvation. We have no ability to cooperate with God. We, we, we need him to act in grace. God saves sinners and sinners get saved. That, that is just the reality. That's the flow and that's the biblical presentation of it. We summarize that view with this point right here. We believe God's grace is necessary for salvation because the sinner is unable to come to Jesus on their own. That was last week's point. That's the, the, the doctrine we presented, but you'll need to remember that. Because it really begins to help us understand why the rest of them are so necessary. And when we begin to understand this doctrine, that grace is absolutely necessary, it makes everything else makes more sense. Everything else tends to begin to fall into place. And so we, we start there. We, it's a difficult doctrine. It's a difficult thing to think about. It's not, a, it's not one that people just get excited to, oh, let's talk about our sin. Like nobody's jumping up and down for joy. But here's the reality. When we understand the depths and the darkness of the bad news, we can begin to understand how glorious the good news really is. We aren't taking medicine. We're not getting an antibiotic for some sickness we have. It's not like getting strep throat and need to take an antibiotic for a few days and now, now we're over it. No, we were dead. We were absolutely incapable of coming to God on our own. We had no power, no ability. We could never deserve it. We could never earn it. We could never pay it back. And quite frankly, God wasn't even obligated to act in any way on our part. He was not obligated to do anything good for us. The Bible is clear about that. We went through that last week. If you weren't here, I would encourage you to go back and listen to last week's sermon. It's online. Uh, you can find it. Just listen through it. Uh, because it's, a, it's, a mass, it's, it's of massive importance that we understand the bad news so that we can celebrate The good news. And here it is. What we can't do, God can and has done. What we're incapable of doing, God is fully capable of doing. And and the Bible demonstrates a number of ways in which he has done that work. The Bible shows us a number of ways in which he makes that happen for us. And the first of these doctrines 
is his election. It's his electing grace. That's what we're going to study today. God has elected to save. And that, that's what we're going to see today. John chapter 6, verse 35. We'll begin reading. For context, I'm going to read all the way through 47, which is the verse that we, verses that we read last week. Some of those are the verses we read last week. I would encourage you to follow along as I read. We'll pray, and then we'll dig in. So the Bible says this, John chapter 6, beginning in verse 30. Uh, I'm sorry, verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me. If you've ever wondered what God's will is, here it is. That I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. And this is the verses that we read last week. So the Jews grumbled about Him because He said, I am the bread of life that comes down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does He now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me. That's the ability portion. No one has the ability to come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day, as it is written in the prophets, as, as it is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever believes has eternal life. Let's pray. Father, we need your help. These are your words. And, and, and I, I believe that, that there's not a person in this room that doesn't in some way desire to understand what they mean. What you mean. What it is to be saved from your perspective. What is your will? I, I believe, Father, that you brought us to this place and to this moment for a reason. So help us now learn. By, by your Holy Spirit, do what you promised you would do and lead us into truth. That we might set aside personal preference, that we might set aside uh, our own small, finite perspectives and see what you are doing through your Son, by your grace and for our good um, from, from your side of things, from your perspective in accordance with your will. So, Father, work now, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is the same set of circumstances we studied last week. Jesus, the day before, Jesus had worked this miracle. This mirac- he had served this miraculous meal to 5,000 men. We don't know how many women and children were there. Some people estimate that there was upwards of, of 10,000 people, maybe 15,000, 20,000 people there. But we know that there was at least 5,000 men that Jesus fed with five loaves of bread and two fish. He's this massive miracle that he just continued to multiply the food. And every time the disciples or the apostles came back to him, that he was handing them more food and they were going and passing it out and there was leftovers. It was this massive miracle. That, that night, he goes to the other side of the sea, 
They don't know where he went. This multitude of people, they don't know where he went. That night he goes to the other side of the sea. And the next morning, this multitude wakes up and they're like, hey, where is he? Let's go find him. And they do. They go to the other side of the sea and there he is. And they enter into conversation with him. And he begins to answer them in ways that they aren't expecting. He draws them into a spiritual conversation. And they recognize they're in a spiritual conversation. And they ask, well, what are we supposed to be doing to do the work of God? And he tells them, you can read this in John chapter 6. It's just before what we read. He tells them the work of God is to believe in him whom he has sent. And as a result of that, they're like, well, wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. if you want us to believe in you, what sign are you going to do for us? What are you going to show us? Like, If we're supposed to be trusting you... What are you going to do for us? Never mind, you just served us this miraculous meal yesterday. When, when, when our fathers, when our forefathers were in the desert, Moses brought them food from heaven. Jesus corrects them and he says, ah, Moses didn't give you food, God did. And then he makes this claim that we started reading verse 35 I am the bread of life. I'm the one. I'm the satisfaction. I'm the one who, when you come to me, you will be satisfied. You'll never hunger again. You'll never thirst again. Now, I've never heard of bread that actually quenches your thirst too, but that's how good this bread is. It doesn't make you thirsty. It fills your belly and satisfies your soul. That's what he's saying. That he is the satisfaction. And they're like, well, well, well hey, you know, really? Aren't you Joseph and Mary's son, like, what do you, how, how can you be the one that comes down from heaven? It, it's interesting in this conversation that, that Jesus never once really just gets upset with them. He never seems disappointed in them. He meets them at this point and he does confront their misunderstandings. He does teach them and, and try to give them knowledge that they can't have or that they don't have. But here they are. They've seen him with their own eyes. They've heard him with their own ears. They've, they've experienced his power, even ate food as a result of the working of his power. And yet, they can't believe in him. In fact, he addresses that in verse 36. He says, but I said to you, you've seen me and yet you do not believe. Remember, theirs was not a problem of opportunity. It was not a problem of, of permission. It wasn't a problem that, that they didn't ha- have enough knowledge. They'd seen him with their own eyes. I said to you that you've seen me and yet you do not believe. Then he says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. You see, Jesus knows. Jesus knows that he doesn't have to argue with them. He doesn't have to seek to to manipulate them. He doesn't have to try to coerce them. He doesn't, he, he doesn't have to give them more. They, they've got all the information they need. He's confident in something. He's confident in the fact that his father has given him his people and everyone that who has been given to him will come to him. His sovereign father has given him a gift. Look at him in verse 37. For all that the Father gives me will come to me. When we talk about salvation, when we look at salvation, we focus so much on the us coming to Him. Why in the world do we ever go to Him? 
Somewhere before we've ever come to him, he has already given us to Jesus. We are God's, God the Father's gracious gift to his son. And what does Jesus say? Everyone that comes to me, everyone that's been given to me, I will never cast out. In fact, I will save them. I will give them eternal life. God has saved us by giving us to Jesus. Jesus knew this. We, we, we teach it and encourage it. You don't have to agree with me on this. This is not something that's essential for salvation, but it is a perspective that we teach from. We believe that God has sovereignly and graciously elected every sinner who he gives to Jesus for their salvation. We believe God has sovereignly and graciously elected every sinner who he gives to Jesus for their salvation. Jesus knew that in the, in the midst of, of our sinful nature, in the midst of these people's sinful nature, he knew that they were unable to come to him. That's what he says. Don't grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me. I'm not surprised you're upset and you don't understand. No one can come to me unless the Father draws him. No one can come to me unless he's been given to me. That's the idea. Jesus, he, he, he doesn't think, oh, I, I just need to give them permission. I just need to be more clear. I just need to give them more knowledge. I just need to give them a better opportunity. No, I've already said to you, you've seen me, he says to them. I've already said you've seen me and yet you will not believe. See, Jesus wasn't discouraged at all. But he didn't back away from speaking the truth at all. In fact, his understanding of election and God giving his people to him, to people to save to him, his understanding of election actually emboldened him. It actually encouraged him in the going and telling and making sure these people knew. He knew that God had the power. He knew that God had the ability. He knew that God had the will, that God had the desire to save even those who wouldn't come and couldn't come. Everything we don't have, God has, and God has worked on our behalf. Jesus was so confident in that that he stood in the face of these people who would want to kill him, who would absolutely, at the end of chapter 6, desert him because he knew everyone that the Father gives me, all that the Father gives me. That's not all in the world, right? That's not everyone in the world. That's all that have been given to me by the Father. They will come. This first step in that process, the first step in the process of God saving these people is called the doctrine of election. It's God sovereignly and graciously giving his people or electing every sinner who, gives, who, who he gives to Jesus for their salvation. Another way that we could define it comes from Wayne Grudem's systematic theology. He defines it this way. Election is an act of God before creation in which he chooses some people to be saved. Not on account of any foreseen merit in them, but only because of his sovereign good pleasure. The Bible presents this doctrine as a reason to worship God, as a reason to be, to be uh, comforted by God, as a reason to celebrate God. But re repeatedly throughout history, we have argued about it. We've dismissed it. We, in some cases, we've, we've ignored it altogether. Like we just, in fact, many of you grew up in churches that if this doctrine came up, if this word came up, you, you just bypass it. You just skim right past it and ignore that it's there. I just had a conversation with a, a woman who lives in our neighborhood. She's part of the neighborhood association. And her church was working through the book of Ephesians and election is clearly demonstrated in, in the book of Ephesians. And 
she starts talking to me about it. She's like, oh my goodness, well, I've never even thought about it. And I said, well, did your church talk? No, no, we didn't talk about it. So you're reading a book of the Bible and ignoring something it teaches because, well, just it seems beyond us. That's a very common way that people have dealt with this doctrine. In some cases, we, we try to redefine it. We try to, we try to define it in a way that kind of suits us and, and, and meets, our, meets us in our own perspective and makes us feel good about us choosing and about our choosing. It fits better with our notion of free will and it, it keeps mankind from being put in his place. It allows us to be a little bit higher than we really are. In some cases, it's just absolutely demonized. Maybe you know people that have been have said they're, they're, they're Calvinists and you just immediately thought, oh, that's a horrible person. They don't love people. They, they don't like evangelism. Well, I'll just tell you, in case you don't know this about me, I'm a Calvinist. And I love each and every one of you. And actually, I love evangelism. I love it so much that this March, I'll go to Africa to a place where if we weren't going, there wouldn't be believers. I hope I've broken every mold and every understanding that demonizes the idea of Calvinism. I'm not saying that some of us haven't earned that name for ourselves. There's some jerks that are Calvinists, right? I get it. I know. I've known them. I've made fun of them too. But you know what? There's jerks that aren't Calvinists as well. Sometimes Christians can just be jerks. And maybe we ought to just think about that for a minute. Okay, that's long enough. We don't have time. But here's the thing, my, my hope today, my, my, my desire today is to help you see this doctrine of election. It's clearly presented here in this passage, but it is a biblical doctrine. It's a beautiful doctrine that displays God's sovereign grace for the people that he has known from before the foundation of the world. Our view of salvation is so small when we look at it from our perspective. But when we look at what God has revealed about salvation in his word, it is massive. It is a work that extends before the day he said, let there be light. He was working to save you, his people. It's a doctrine when rightly understood encourages worship. It draws us to worship. In fact, it enables our worship because suddenly when we recognize we've been chosen by God and we're not trying to measure up in any way, we finally at last can look at him and honor him freely without thinking, am I doing enough? Am I earning my position? Is he going to allow me to be in, in his presence? Yes, he chose you to be here. You're here. You're there because he said you can be here. Not because you finally figured out the right songs to sing or the right emotions to feel or the right works to do, but because he said, be here. It's a doctrine that emboldens evangelism and encourages us to persevere. Even when we're going for three years into this one village, three years we were going into this village and not one convert. But they, they would make these incremental steps. These, these Muslim people make these incremental steps. I know what you're saying is true. I, I, I know, but, but, but look, this is what we've been taught. And all my life I've, I've prayed these things, I've thought these things. And, and if I come out and profess faith out loud, I lose everything. For three years we went before we saw the first convert. And when we saw the first convert, we quickly saw the second. In fact, it was the same trip. We saw two at one time. And both of them, both of them 
so emboldened and courageous. Why do we go? Because we know in going and telling the truth, all that the Father has given Jesus will come to Jesus. You don't have to know everything. The salvation of people, the working of God in His people doesn't depend on you and me. We can go speaking truth in whatever way we know it because we know that all that the Father has given to His Son will come. Not because of my charismatic attitude. Not because I shout enough or quiet enough. Not because, I, not because you have all the answers or can say all the right things in just the right way, but because God chooses his people. All that he has given to Jesus will come to Jesus. Brothers and sisters, I hope when we're done, you will see the beauty of this doctrine that God graciously elects sinners to come to Jesus in accordance with his sovereign will. He does this in accordance with his sovereign will. At the heart of the debate of election is, is this idea of who is, who, who's ruling in election, like who's really giving permission for salvation. Does man give permission for salvation or does God give permission to salvation? Are, are, are we measuring it out and weighing it all out in accordance with our understanding and our perspectives and, and us th- saying from, from our perspective, yes, okay, God, I can affirm God, I can believe God, he's trustworthy according to me, and so I will choose him? Or is God sovereign in the choosing so that he proves himself to each person, changes their nature according to his choosing so that then they're able to respond? Who is sovereign in salvation, man or God? That's at the heart of the debate. Well, at the heart of of the doctrine is the truth that God is sovereign in this. God is the one who is saving sinners. Sinners are the ones getting saved. God is giving all that he intends. That's what the verse tells us, verse 37. All that he intends to give to Jesus, Jesus will save. Every one of them. Jesus is going to save everyone that the Father gives him. The ones given to Jesus, look at verse 38, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but whose? The will of him who sent me. And this is his will, that I should lose nothing that he has given me. All of salvation, every ounce of the working of salvation is done in accordance with the will of God. He is sovereign, has always been sovereign, will always be sovereign, and even in this moment is sovereign. He didn't didn't rule in sovereignty over everything and then say, oh, but I'm not going to be sovereign in salvation. I'll let people do that. That's not God. God has always been, will always be, and is in this moment sovereign. Before anyone comes to Jesus to be saved, they are given to Jesus by the Father to be drawn by Him, to be saved by Jesus. That's what He teaches us. Now, we don't see the word election in this passage, so maybe I'm drawing some conclusions and coming to this with some presuppositions that that aren't there. Well, I don't think so. Because what we see happening is an act by God that in, enables the act by man. No one can come unless the Father draws him. Remember that from verse 47. 
I'm not sorry, not 47, verse uh, 48 or something. Let me find it. 44, sorry. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Before the drawing happens, the giving happens. In, in verse 36, I said to you, you've seen me, you don't believe. Why do they not believe? Because they can't. They're incapable. Verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come. Well, the, 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 the election, the giving from God the Father to Jesus the Son is the, is the initiating fact. It's the cause that gives the effect of coming. God giving to the Son is the, is the cause that affected man to come to Jesus. But this isn't the only place that this is taught. According, it, it, It's all over the Scripture. God's will in salvation, He is the one willing how salvation is played out. John chapter 1, verses 11 through 13. He came to His own. This is John. So John is about to, in, in the initial passages, initial paragraphs of John chapter 1, He is about to establish Jesus Christ as God in flesh. And He tells us why He came to save those He came to save. In verse 11 of John chapter 1 through 13, it says this, He came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him. Why did they not receive Him? We know that they were not able to. They had no ability. Why, why, why did they not come to Him? Because they cannot. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born, not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Who saved you? Did, did, did you save you? Did I save me? Was I born again according to my own will? No. The will of God is what gave birth to us as believers in Jesus Christ. He's the one that gave us ability. And he had to choose. He had to elect us in order to give us. Later, Paul, teaching the church in Rome, he writes this letter to the church in Rome. You guys know it as the book of Romans. He's expressing his deep desire in Romans chapter 9, his deep desire to see his uh, uh, fellow Jews saved. And he finds comfort in the sovereign and electing will of God. He writes in Romans 9, 11 through 13, Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls... She was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. God chose between Jacob and Esau. God's the one that determined whether Jacob would rule or Esau would rule. The older is going to serve the younger, he says. Now, some people have gone to this passage and they've said, well, look, he's, he's choosing Jacob's role. He's not choosing him... But when you place this in the context of Romans chapter 9, and I would encourage you all to read it. We'll actually reference some verses from it later. I would encourage you all to read it in context. When you look at it, sitting, not just these verses sitting in Romans chapter 9, in Romans chapter 9, sitting between Romans chapter 8 and Romans chapter 10, we see the sovereignty of God at work. Not just choosing people's roles. This is going to rhyme, saving people's souls. I'm a poet and didn't know it. He is saving people. And he's choosing these things so that the purpose of his election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, because of his will, because of his sovereign rule. 
He is ensuring that this elective force, that this choosing force, that this sovereign decision and his sovereign will is carried out in every aspect of human history. In in the acrostic tulip, the T stands for total depravity. We studied that last week and we're we're incapable of saving ourselves, right? But, But the U stands for unconditional election. It's described this way because God elects without any condition on those he elects. He didn't choose Jacob because Jacob had done good works to deserve them. Before he had ever had an opportunity. Before any good works were done. From our perspective, from our side, God's election of of sinners to save is completely unconditional. I don't like that term personally because it doesn't really demonstrate the truth of the doctrine. I prefer the term sovereign election because... Brothers and sisters, while we describe it from our perspective as unconditional election, and that's absolutely true, when you look at it from God's perspective, it is absolutely conditional. But what is it conditional upon? His sovereign will, His purpose in election. He chooses to save. He wasn't obligated to. He made the choice. He elected to save And then he chose who to save. He elected who he would save. God is sovereign in salvation, not mankind. He graciously elects according to his sovereign will. Because of who he is, not because of who we are. But let's flip it around. Let's look at it from a slightly different perspective. God sovereignly elects sinners to come to Jesus and be saved by his grace. In the last point, we were looking at election from the sovereign perspective. We were looking at it from a position of, of, of his will being the thing that guides this election. But now let's look at it in the sense of grace being the reason. We're being saved by grace. We're actually being elected unto grace. We're being elected to receive grace. We're being elected in grace. We're being chosen in grace. It is an act of grace. To receive the saving grace. It's all grace. Grace upon grace. You get it? Everything he's done for you is grace. Even choosing you. Let's look back at our passage from John. Why why does the Father give us to the Son? What's the purpose in giving? So that we will come. So that Jesus will save. He's not saving everyone, right? We, we know that as you look at this verse, as you look at verse 37, he says, all that the Father gives me. Now, here's something we got to do when we're reading the Bible. We look at the word all. And is that all in a universal sense that all in the world? Or is it a smaller all? Like all in this room? It's actually all that the Father gives me. That the Father gives me qualifies the all in this verse. He's not saving everyone. He's not giving this grace to everyone. But all that the Father gives me, all that the Father has chosen to give me, will come to me. All that the Father has determined to save will be saved by Jesus. His will is that Jesus wouldn't lose any of them or leave any of them behind. This is what he's doing. He has given us the grace of election so that we can enjoy the salvation that is by grace. God has elected people. He's he's been choosing people for all kinds of reasons throughout history. All kinds of them. In in Romans chapter 9, you can read about how he elected Pharaoh. I allowed you to rise to power so that I could show my glory through you. 
And what did he do? He destroyed Pharaoh. Yeah, he chose him for his role in history. He, he chose between Jacob and Esau. He, he, he chose. The, the, the nation of Israel, he chose. Among all the other nations, he chose Israel to enter into covenant with them. That through them, Jesus would be born and Jesus would live in the flesh on this earth and die a sacrificial death and rise in victory that we might celebrate baptisms of people who have come to him and believed in him and been saved by him. See, God has been choosing people all along and he didn't stop choosing when it came to salvation. He chooses to save and he chooses who to save. He chooses that he would save and he chooses who to save by it. He chooses to give grace and he chooses who he would give that grace to. Choosing people to to experience it, it's it's exactly what Paul's emphasizing in the book of Ephesians. I I referenced this a minute ago. I I mentioned it, this this woman studying it with her church, and they just breezed past it, didn't want to deal with it. Paul, writing to the church in Ephesus in chapter 1, verses 3 through 6, he writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's calling them to praise Him. He's calling them to to worship Him, to to speak words of, of, of truth and blessing upon Him. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. He's not held anything back from us, he says. Praise Him for it. Even as He chose us, verse 4, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. He chose us before he said, let there be light. He chose who would be holy, set apart unto him. That means distinct unto him. In fact, he is called holy, holy, holy. God's primary attribute that's emphasized all the way through the scripture is holiness. And now he says, I'm choosing those who would be like me in this attribute and I'm making them holy. I chose them before the foundation of the world, not because of who they were, not because of what they would do. I chose them to be holy and blameless. No sin to hold against you. No no, no condemnation in Christ Jesus, as Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. You are righteous. You are considered, 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 counted righteous by God. You are counted as one without any fault. When he looks at you, he's pleased with you because he chose you for this purpose. In love, in love, in verse 5, in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. He's not only made you holy, he's not only made you blameless, he has brought you into his family. You are his child. He chose this. He predestined it. And the predestination part that goes with election is about him working all of history to ensure this thing, that this reality would be true, that you become his, that you are moved from one family and brought into his, that you are removed out of a family that is marked by death and a lack of holiness and filled with blame, and you are brought into his. You are his child. He goes on to say that this identity as his sons gives us inheritance. It gives us his good will coming to us. It gives us something great to look forward to. And why? How did he do this? He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to what? The purpose of his will. So that goes back to the point we were making before. This is about his sovereign will. But look at verse 6. To the praise of his 
glorious grace. God has sovereignly elected sinners to come to Jesus so that we could be saved by, so that we would be saved by His grace. He chose to give grace and He chose who to give that grace, grace to. They were chosen. These people were chosen. You and I were chosen. Again, the book of Romans, Paul writes, Romans chapter 8, verse 28 through 30. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. He, he writes this as if it's just an understood reality in and among God's people. We know that those who love God are, are, are I'm sorry, that those, for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. For the, the, the people that he knew from before the foundation of the world, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. He made everything work in history to the point that each and every person that he had given to Jesus would be saved by Jesus in order that they might be the firstborn among many brothers. It's not just about you and it's not just about me. It's about all of God's children. It's about all of God's people. Verse 30, those whom he predestined, he also called. Those who he called, he also justified. And those who he justified, he also Glorified, and, and it's interesting in this, I don't have a lot of time here, but, but every one of those are, are, are spoken as if they've already occurred. Because your salvation is certain because God has chosen you. He foreknew you and predestined you. If you're sitting here, a believer in, lover of, desire of God's glorious good uh, and grace in Jesus Christ, it is not because you first chose him. It's because he first chose you. Before the foundation of the world, he elected to save you. And he made sure that that happened. And it will not. And there's nothing that can change it. He comes to the end of Romans chapter 8 and he proves that. As nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. He chose. He predestined all of us that would be conformed to the likeness of God. He sovereignly elected that we would be saved by grace. Now there are many who, who react to this and they say, oh, well, that's unfair. This doctrine of election is just not fair. This, 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 is not good. this is not a good thing. This is unfair. And I, I answer that this way. You're right. It's unfair. Just not the way you think it's unfair. See, it, it's unfair that God had to suffer the death of Jesus, his son, so that sinners could be saved. That's pretty unfair. That the one who is innocent who had never sinned, who had only ever lived for the glory of his father and who did it perfectly, died a sinner's death. It's unfair that a sinner like me gets to enjoy eternal life. That's absolutely unfair. It's unfair for sure that any are saved at all, that any can say they are saved. That is absolutely unfair. Saved sinners, we don't get what we deserve at all. God paid that price for us. Yeah, that's unfair. You know, the only ones who are treated fairly in this whole system are the sinners who aren't saved because they're getting exactly what they wanted in their fallen, sinful nature. And they're getting exactly what they deserve. And I don't say that. Please don't hear me saying that in a cold and crass manner. It grieves me that people I know and love are unable to come and unable to believe in him. And I plead with him for them. Open their eyes, change their hearts. It's going to take a work of you 
So I don't know who's elected and who's not. And I, don't, I, I will only ever be able to see some of that unfold in front of us as people step out, make professions of faith, and begin to live the Christian life and, and see the fruit of that in them. You don't know who's elected and who's not. So we, we, we need to be pleading with God for the salvation of the people we know. We need to be speaking the truth to everyone who will listen with the confidence that everyone who God has given to Jesus will come to Jesus. God choosing to save any of us is unfair, but it is an act of God's grace. You realize he's not obligated to save anyone because no one deserves it. He's not obligated to save anyone because no one could ever earn it. He's not obligated to save anyone because we, we couldn't even ever pay it back. There's not, a, there's not enough eternity in front of us to pay him back for the sin that we committed against him to begin with. God is not obligated to save anyone. That he saves is an act of grace. Everyone who is saved is saved then by God's grace and he has every right He has every right, not just to determine, I will save by grace. He has every right as the sovereign God to determine who he saves by grace. To say it's unfair uh, 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 from our perspective is to determine that I know better than God. It's determined that God did it wrong and that he should listen to man. But if he listened to man, where would we be? Without grace. I want to illustrate this another way. I know you're all wondering, why in the world did he have a dry erase board that, that he knocked over? <laughs> so I, I draw this for a lot of people. You maybe have seen it before. Uh, I've been told that it's the thing that helps people understand it. I'm just going to assume that God used these terrible little stick figures and boxes I'm about to draw in his sovereign grace to help people see how he chose to save us. Here's the reality of our life. We don't like it, but it's true. Our life is lived in a prison. This is you in prison. Uh, Here, you're not by yourself. Let's throw some other happy little folks in here. We won't draw any happy little trees, but we'll draw some happy little people. All right, I'm terrible. I'm not an artist. Get over it. Here's the reality. Here we are in this prison. We don't know it's a prison. Because we go to places like the Rocky Mountains and we go to places like Bora Bora and we see the beauty of this creation and we're amazed by it. We think, this is beautiful. This is amazing. We're able to marry or stay single. We're able to work as a, as, as a um, trash truck driver or a CEO. We're able to do all these different things. We're able to go to college or not go to college. We're, we're, we're able to eat cornflakes for breakfast or cook. Well, St. George's Donuts, we're able to come and get some... We're able to make all these decisions in life. We don't realize it's a prison. And here's something about this prison that drives us nuts. Somewhere along the way, in our DNA, God has written on all of our hearts, the Bible teaches us that God has written on our hearts eternity. And so in this prison, He has given us windows to know that there's more outside, that there's more beyond it. There's something out there. And we all long for it. We all want it. It, It's interesting to me that people who don't believe in God still believe that there's something out there. And we try to define it from our little perspective, looking out these little windows. He's given us so much ability. He's actually written eternity on our hearts. Given us so much opportunity. 
You know what he hasn't made us able to do? Unless he chooses to do so, we can't get out. We'll, we'll be born in this prison and we'll die and we'll live forever in this prison. Unless, by his grace, he opens the door and comes in and chooses us to come out. We're stuck without him. He didn't choose to make you better than all these other people. He didn't choose to just make you different than all these people. He chose you that you would be able to live out here. He chose you that you would be able to enjoy his grace, not just for a moment, but for eternity. He chose you. Apart from his choosing to save you by grace, you're like everyone else in this prison. You're stuck and unable to do anything about it. See, the reality is that if he hadn't chosen you, you would be called what's known as reprobate. You would be condemned. The other side of this doctrine of election is reprobation. We would define that this way, the sovereign decision of God before creation to pass over some persons in sorrow, deciding not to save them. He doesn't take glee in the punishment or the condemnation of those who are being condemned. To pass over some persons in sorrow, deciding not to save them and to punish them for their sins and thereby to manifest his justice. You see, brothers and sisters, this shouldn't cause us to look around at other people and say, I'm better I've earned more. I've deserved more from God. God, why aren't you doing more from me? This should cause us to look at people around us who reject God and say, oh, please don't reject him. Oh, this is unfair. Oh, what, what, what is God doing? Oh, I just don't know if I can stomach this reality. Well, Paul knew that these arguments would come up. He knew that people would wrestle with the doctrine of election, even as he's writing about it in Romans chapter 9. And he comes to this place in Romans 9, verse 14, and he writes, What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or on exertion, but on God who has mercy. Brothers and sisters, we cannot shrink the sovereignty of God to determine that we get the right to tell him who he should save. We cannot shrink the sovereignty of God down to fit within our finite, small, little bitty perspectives to say that he must give grace to who we say he must give grace to. We must humbly approach him must approach Him recognizing He is God. We are His creation. And we can grieve and we can be upset and we can mourn the loss that there will be people condemned forever. But God is God and He has every right to have mercy on whom He has mercy. He has every right to give grace to who He is going to give grace to. God is God. Romans 9, he goes on, uh, 19, he, well, he deals with it all the way through, but, but in 19, we'll pick back up. He says, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? 
For who can resist his will? But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? What, what, what is molded? Will what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for the vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory? See, God didn't have to save. But he chose to do so. God didn't have to give grace. He didn't have to to extend mercy. But he chose to. And because God doesn't cease to be God in the giving of grace and mercy, he's the only one who's able to determine who he will give it to. So God is sovereignly electing and he is graciously electing that according to his sovereign will, and he is electing sinners to be saved. And God's sovereign and gracious election initiates and ensures the sinner's salvation. The initiating work of our salvation is not our faith and repentance. Is that necessary? Absolutely, we're coming to that. We're going to get to that. But God elected to save sinners like you and like me. He chose to give us to the Son. He chose that his will through his Son would be carried out, that Jesus would would fulfill his will not to lose any, but to save. This is God's determination. So now, rather than shying away from the evangelistic call, rather than shying away from our sovereign God, rather than, than, than running off into some frustration and anger, what, what do we do? Well, let me, let me ask you a few questions. Do you love Jesus? Do you love him? Do you have a desire to obey him? Do you want to see him glorified in the world? Do you trust that you're a sinner that he died for on the cross? instead of taking credit for any of those foundational desires and foundational loves, praise God that you have them. You have them because he chose you to have them. And not only did he start your salvation, if you have them, you can be sure of this. Jesus will not lose any who the Father has given him. You can rest in the sovereignty of God's choice from here to the day you meet him. And when you see him face to face, rather than run and hide, you can fall on your face and worship. Never to have to worry about being separated from him again. Maybe you answered those questions, no. Well, I really don't have those desires. I really love myself. I love the things I love. I want the things I want. I want to see myself exalted. I would plead with you, sinner, trust in Jesus for your salvation. I'm not going to argue with you. I'm not going to think less of you. I'm not going to be angry with you if you deny it and reject it. Because I'm confident that all who the Father has given to Jesus will come to Jesus. And all that come to Jesus will be saved. Would you trust in him and him alone?
Let's pray.